As you're making your way back to your seats, beloved, I want you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Um, we'll get back to, to Romans next week and Romans chapter 13, but this morning, you know, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper, and some of the very men that we ordained today are going to be serving the supper for the first time. And you now I was praying about it this week. It's been a while since I preached a message on the significance of the Lord's Supper, and so I was convinced that I should do so today. And You know, I don't have an outline for you to follow today. If you want to take notes, you can. I want you to do whatever works best for you um, as far as listening and all that. But, But my desire for us this morning is that we would just spend some time in earnest meditation and contemplation regarding these words, this description, this proscription regarding the Lord's Supper that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. So let's stand together, and I want us to read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll read beginning in verse 23 through verse 29. This is the Word of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. In remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until. He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's go ahead and pray. You can be seated. Lord God, these words... These words that we've read this morning, this instruction regarding the Lord's Supper, Paul says that he got directly from you, Lord Jesus, that you reveal it to him directly, and you reveal it to him that he might reveal it to us. Lord, as we approach this act of worship, as we approach the Lord's table this morning, Father, my prayer is that we would do so as a most worshipful and holy act, that, Father God, we would come without a distracted mind or a distracted heart, but, Lord, that we would come fully contemplating and remembering everything that this table portrays to us, the very heart of the gospel, and that we would come this morning deliberately focusing our thoughts and remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's easy for us, Lord. You know it. You know our hearts. You know what we're like. You know that we're frail creatures of dust. Lord, sometimes it's so easy for us to take something that is so valuable and by familiarity with it become desensitized to it. And that's no less so true of the Lord's table. So I pray, Lord God, that you would give us hearts and minds that would be attentively focused upon your word today. And I pray, 
Father God, that you would stir our hearts and flame our souls with great devotion toward you as we, as we unfold these words. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give me the grace and the strength that I need in order to speak these words in a way that is pleasing in your sight. That, Father God, I would speak not of my own will and not of my own, you know, my own wisdom at all, but that I would speak only as I am led by your Holy Spirit. So fill me with your Spirit. Make me an instrument in your hands. Make me a, a vessel that is fit for your use. And, Lord God, open the hearts of your people today. They are ears to receive your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, if you're familiar with the, you know, the Corinthian church, and if you're familiar with the letters to the Corinthians, as you already know, the bulk of Paul's letter to the Corinthians was really, it was written to rebuke and to correct the worldly and the carnal and the selfish and the damaging attitudes and behaviors that were rampant in that church, right? Now, Paul does go to great lengths to acknowledge that the church in Corinth was a true church, but it had some problems, didn't it? I mean, they had problems with infighting. They had problems with factionalism. They had problems with spiritual pride. They had a casual attitude towards grievous sin. They, there was confusion regarding the purpose and the practice of the spiritual gifts. And, and there was corruption of the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to know that I did not choose this text this morning because I think that you are... Corinthianized. That's not why I chose it. By God's grace, I don't think we're this church. But I did choose this text because of Paul's plain teaching regarding the simplicity and the value and the blessing of the Lord's Supper. Like these words are very straightforward. They're very direct. They're very plain. And they're words this, this, that describe, you know, the Lord's Supper that's been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ for our spiritual good and for our strength. And so really what I want us to do this morning is rather than just trying to break this down to a bunch of headings and everything else, I just want us to mine this text together for the edification of our souls. Okay? So look with me again. Starting in verse 23, what Paul writes. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night which he, when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there's a lot that we can draw from that text, right? And I'm not going to try to draw every single thing out. But I do want us to see a couple of things just here at the jump. I want us to first of all notice the authority with which Paul addresses the importance and the value of the Lord's Supper. I want you to see how he does this. He makes clear that, that what he's telling us, he received by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, look, I didn't go up to Jerusalem and confer with the other apostles that were there. We didn't sit down and try to craft what would be a good idea as, as far as the way a worship service should look. This has no origin 
in our own human wisdom. Instead, this is something that we got directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the authority and the importance of what I'm saying to you is rooted in the revelation of God to me, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to me. So it's not up for debate. What I'm saying to you about the Lord's Supper, you need to hear. And then notice that secondly, Paul emphasizes the historicity of our faith and of the Lord's Supper, because he tells us that this supper is based in historical events, right? He tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was gathered with his disciples, that he was celebrating the Passover meal when he instituted the Lord's Supper, that he spoke these words and he, and he shared the bread and the cup with his disciples on the very night in which Judas betrayed him unto death. He shared these words on the eve of his crucifixion. He spoke these words of love and of grace, and he gave this soul-strengthening ordinance to his disciples. Get this now. In the midst of betrayal and of conspiracy and of trial and of trouble, though it would be mere hours before the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified in our stead, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his disciples. He's thinking about what they need. And he's thinking about what this bread and this cup represent. And beloved, the very soul of the Lord's table is this. It's do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we need to understand something. And we need to understand that what it means to remember in a biblical sense is not the same thing as what it means to remember in our general sense conversations to remember in a biblical sense means more than just bringing back to your mind something that you've forgotten that you were supposed to know it means more than simply recalling a past event or something that took place or some words that somebody said but to remember in a biblical sense means to go back in your mind to go back in your soul and in your heart It means to try to recall and remember as much as you possibly can the reality and the significance of someone or something that carries the idea of setting something significant before your mind once again. And then having your thoughts and your desires and your emotions and your affections and your actions, your very life shaped and directed By that remembrance. And we need to ask ourselves, obviously, like, I mean, you know, Jesus is talking to disciples. He's talking to these guys who have believed in him. He's talking to these guys who, you know, later on came to understand in fullness the meaning of the cross. Like, why would Jesus say to them, do this in remembrance of me? Why would Jesus give them an ordinance, give us an ordinance by which we would be compelled to stop what we were doing and actually think about the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's why. Because in our humanness, we are sometimes quick to forget the things that matter the most, aren't we? We get consumed with the tyranny of the urgent. The things that are demanding our attention have to be done right now. And we forget about those things of greater importance. 
We become consumed with, with earthly things that, that we have to accomplish, with earthly demands that must be met, with earthly requirements and earthly responsibilities, with the everyday things of our lives, and we forget what should shape our souls. If you're married, I'll give you this. And you know this is true. You get into an argument with your spouse, and if you don't handle it in a biblical nature... You relate to one another in such a way as to show that you have practically forgotten the vows you made before the Almighty God, right? You with me? Oh, no, not me, brother. Yes, you. There's an inbuilt, natural, because of the fall, ability in us to forget the things that matter most. And that includes Christ. It's not that We don't remember Christ. Please turn your phone off. It's not that we don't remember Christ or, you know, Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. It's that in a practical sense, in a very real sense, as it regards our actions and our thoughts and our motives and our desires and our emotions, right? We forget him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ gives us this supper so that we'll remember him. So we'll remember who he is. So we'll remember what He has done so that we will remember His claim upon us so that we will orient our thoughts and our affections and our actions and our very lives on Him individually and corporately, right? As we share in a simple meal of bread and the fruit of the vine, right? This supper that we share is about our souls. It's not about our bellies, right? Nobody's getting stuffed on a a piece of bread and a little cup of juice, right? It's about our souls. When we take this broken bread, the emblem of Christ's body, and the cup, the emblem of His blood, then what is it that we're to remember? Where should our thoughts go? What should we be thinking about? Let me just give you a few things. When the Lord Jesus took the bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body, which is for you, beloved, He was making clear that He was to suffer a violent death for our sake. The breaking of the bread is significant. It symbolizes the pain, the wretchedness of the death that he would endure on our part. You know the words of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we take the broken bread, we're to remember that the wrath of God fell on Christ in our place. And in that sense, he was broken for us. When he gave the bread to his disciples to eat in remembrance of him, the message of Christ, in essence, was this. It was, this is what I'm going to do for you. This bread's a symbol of my body. It's a symbol of my life. It's a symbol of my all that I will give for you. It is the climax of my sacrifice for your sake. Think about it, beloved. The entire life of our Lord was sacrificed for us, wasn't it? And it came to its climax in the anguish and the bloody sweat of Gethsemane and the horrible sufferings at the hands of sinful men. And then in his agonizing and in his atoning death on the cross where the Lord of glory bore our shame and our sin. That's what we're to think about 
when we come to this table. Paul tells us, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord, Jesus Christ, would ratify with his own blood the new covenant. Not in the sense, not new in the sense that it was different, but new in the sense that the covenant of grace, the promise of blessing that was made to Abraham and then repeated and explained by, for instance, Jeremiah when he wrote, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That covenant, the covenant of grace would be finally and, and fully Accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ through his sacrifice, through the shedding of his blood. And he would bring to pass that which is most needed for his people. The forgiveness of sins, atonement, reconciliation, and fellowship with God. Forgiveness fully given. Atonement for sins beyond your ability to number. Reconciliation of a sinful man or a sinful woman to a holy God. Fellowship with the Lord. Forged, incorruptible, and unbreakable forever because Jesus took upon His righteous head our sinfulness and our blood guilt before God. That's what we remember. That He bore the punishment for our sins so that we could be justified and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That His blood, Christ's blood, made an actual atonement in time for our transgressions and turned away God's wrath on our behalf. Our sin had rent asunder our fellowship with God, but in Christ and through His blood, we are now inseparably and eternally joined to God because Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Amen. And at the table... We remember this truth that defines us. And it's also at this table that we are reminded how it is that we receive, how it is that we take hold of the benefit of Christ's sacrificial death. He tells us here, right? Take and eat. Take and eat. Take and drink. Take and drink. You know what that symbolizes. Eating and drinking is symbolic language for faith, is it not? Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life. Jesus was not calling us to cannibalism in John chapter 6. He was calling us to faith by using symbolic language for faith. Because just as food must be eaten and wine must be drunk for it to nourish our bodies, so must the truth of Christ's redemptive work be personally received by each one of us. Faith is nothing less, beloved, than spiritual eating and drinking. It's nothing, you know, less than receiving deep into our souls the truth of what Christ has done and staking our spiritual life and our, and our spiritual sustenance on the bread of His body broken and given for us and on the wine of His blood shed for us. And I want you to notice something else here. I want you to notice the corporate nature of these words, beloved. I want you to notice the corporate nature of these words. You can't see it in the English, but the repeated references to you are plural. 
They're plural. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that, you know, what Christ did, he did for you, but not only for you individually. He did it for all his people. He did it for the whole church. And so when we come to this table, we're reminded that the Lord of glory loved me and he gave himself for me. Yes and amen. And that the one who is now crowned with many crowns was once crowned with thorns. And that the one whom the angels and the saints adore was once shamed by men and forsaken by God. And that the one who holds the power of life tasted death for me. Yes and amen. But not only for me, but for you. For us. For all who love Him and trust in Him alone. And that's why you and I cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper alone. There's no private partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because it's not a private table. It's a table at which Christ spiritually is at the head. And all sinners who have been cleansed of their guilt by His grace are in attendance. We're meant to celebrate this table together so that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. When we share in this supper, together we proclaim, right, the Lord's death, the significance of His atoning sacrifice until, praise God, the day comes when the trumpet sounds and the Lord will descend from heaven in majesty and in glory and every eye will behold Him and every every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We celebrate this table until we see Him face to face. And what that means is this, is that there will never be a time as long as the church of God is on this earth that the Lord's Supper will not be necessary and essential so that we proclaim the glory and the wonder and the majesty of His death until He comes. But to whom do we declare it? That's the question. Who are we declaring Christ's death to? When we come and we share in this table, let me just give you a few thoughts here. One is this. We're we're proclaiming this to ourselves, right? We're proclaiming the reality of Christ's death and the benefit of it to ourselves, right? Beloved, which one of us, which one of us in this room has not at one time or another felt as if, you know what? My sins are insurmountable and they are innumerable. Which of us has never felt like, man, I am not growing in grace like I ought to. Which of us has never thought that, You know, perhaps my doubts are getting the best of me. Which of us has never been in a place where we thought that our spiritual state was not what it ought to be and that we are still so far short of what we should be in Christ? You ever been there? I have. Let me tell you what. This table is the answer to those things. Those thoughts. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, 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 you know, you can be careless in your walk with the Lord or, or you can walk in unrepentant sin and it's okay or that, that it's all right to have a spurious and a weak faith. That's not what I'm saying. But this table turns our believing hearts and our minds to this truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death. You are reconciled. Declarative statement. You don't need to be reconciled again when you've been reconciled to Almighty God. Amen? You're reconciled right now. And Christ has done it in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This table reminds you, listen, 
that the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile you to Almighty God. And because he has done that, he's not going to fail in his mission and his intention to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He will keep you in the faith. He will keep you stable and steadfast. He will not allow you to shift from the hope of the gospel that you have heard because Christ is your shepherd who holds your heart in his hands. This table reminds us, past tense, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It reminds us, past tense, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Reminds us that you've been purchased. You've been ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so therefore, the Lord will accomplish his purposes in you. When we come to this table, we feed on that truth by faith. We feed on him by faith. J.C. Ryle says, and I think he's right on, he said the two elements of bread and wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute under a lively emblems they were to be a visible sermon appealing to the believer's senses and teaching the old foundation truth of the gospel that christ's death on the cross is the life of men's souls you come into this table partaking of the lord's supper we proclaim the death of christ to ourselves and to one another we're forged together, you know, in a wonderful way at this table, in a great camaraderie and a solidarity of our hearts with other believers. Because we say to one another, in essence, as we're coming together to this table, that, you know what, I love and I believe with all my soul in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know you do too. And so this is who and what unites us together above everything else, our Lord and Savior and his death and his resurrection to make us one, to make us his people. And so we join our hearts to remember our Lord and to renew our fellowship with one another as we renew our fellowship with Him. We declare Christ's death to ourselves and to one another. We also declare Christ's death to God the Father. You ever thought about that? We come to the Father in this act of worship and as we feed on this bread and we drink of this cup and we do so by faith and in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, we say in essence to Father, the Father in heaven, Lord, we are yours, and we've been bought at the price of your son's precious blood, and we will gladly have him to reign and rule over us because he loved us, and he gave himself for us. And we believe in your son, and we treasure him as Lord. And so by coming to this table, we are confessing our faith in the finished work of your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. And moreover, in coming to this table together we proclaim the lord's death to the world we say to those who are yet unbelievers in our midst friend we believe in the lord jesus christ here we believe that he died for our sins we've trusted in him alone as our mediator with god the father and we gladly give up our lives to him as our master and so whatever you may think of him we proclaim to you that he is all our salvation and He is all our hope and He is all our joy. And we're telling you, you need to humble yourself and you need to come and believe in His death and to pay sin's penalty and to extinguish the wrath of God against you before it's too late. Because one day we'll celebrate this table 
And it will be the last time that we ever do so on this earth. Beloved, we do this, that we do this until the Lord comes, that we share in the Lord's Supper until the Lord comes. It shows and it displays that His death, His righteous sacrifice, the shedding of His blood, it will be effective and powerful to save until time is no more. We're not called to proclaim something that's worn out or spent. Think about that, beloved. We're not called to to proclaim something that's impotent. We're not called to proclaim something that no longer is effective or effectual, that no longer has power. The power of Christ's blood shall never lose its strength until all the ransomed of God are saved to sin no more. And moreover, what we are called, that we're called to do this until Christ comes shows us that there will always be a true church on this earth to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen? There will. No matter how dark the days get, no matter the challenges that we face, no matter how you know much the government may persecute the true people of God, no matter how the society hates the people of Christ, not even hell itself can silence the gospel of Jesus Christ or drive away his remembrance by those whom he's redeemed. That's why this table, that's why this bread and this cup are so important to be celebrated and so necessary and vital to our spiritual health and our strength because it's at this table that we remember and we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. We concentrate our thoughts. We meditate. We put our minds where they ought to be. And our souls are strengthened. And our faith is nourished. And our love grows. And our wonder is expanded. The blessings and the benefits of the table are remarkable. They stoke in us real love. Deep love for the one who's loved us unto death. It creates an atmosphere of thanksgiving that defies description for the atonement that Jesus made for us. It renews our awe that Christ could love a sinner like me. Like us. It fills our hearts with the realization of God's acceptance of us not because of what we had done, but because of what Christ has done. It fills our hearts with a sense of devotion, true devotion and willing submission to our Lord who did not count His own life a price too great to pay in order to save us and bring us to Himself. It creates in us a joy and a blessedness that we've been made a part of the people of God. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful act of worship. It is an incredible gift from Christ. And it's not to be taken lightly. And that's why Paul says what he does in verses 27 through 29. And I'll just look at these briefly, but I want you to look at them with me. He says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. I want you to see what Paul is saying here, beloved. And I want you to receive it in your heart. There's a way to come to this table in an unworthy manner. There's a way to come to the Lord's table and to partake in this supper in a way that makes you guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and makes you to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. How is that? How is that? How does one participate in the Lord's Supper 
in a way that's unworthy and, and undiscerning. Well, there are a number of ways it can be done. First, can I just say, it's to come in unbelief. It's to come here merely as a religious ritual. It's to come here not really your soul captured by a true faith in Christ, but just doing this because it's what religious people do. To do it without a real and a deep faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You can do it by coming casually or indifferently and not really considering deeply the spiritual depth of what you're doing. Seeing nothing more than a piece of bread and a cup and not the one whom they represent. You can do it by cherishing and protecting a pet sin with an unrepentant and proud heart. You can come to the table unworthily just by you know, coming merely to keep up appearances and spiritual reputation while persisting in spiritual self-rule and resisting the conviction of God for sin that you had in your life. You can do it by coming flippantly or frivolously, thoughtlessly. Beloved, this table is not for unbelievers. It's not for the skeptic. It's not for the spurious. It's not for the antinomian, the person who's fooled themselves into believing that grace is a license for sin. That's why Paul gives this command. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before we come to this table, we are commanded to truly examine our souls. Not just assume. Examine our hearts before the Lord. Examine our souls before Him. Confess our sin. Humble ourselves under His mighty hand. We're to do some self-examination. Some heart searching before we come to the table. That should lead to confession and repentance. That should lead to humility. That should lead to a heart that says, to have Christ, I forsake sin. To uncompromisingly and without self-justification examine our hearts, confess our sins, and prepare ourselves to come to the table in the right state of mind and right state of heart and right state of soul. Now, I want to say something about that. I want to say something about that because there are some people and I've talked to them and you may be one of them who will say, well, I've had a really bad week. I've sinned in this way and that way and the other way. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, to, I'm going to self-censure and I'm just not going to partake of the Lord's Supper this week. Now I'm a, I'm a sinner, so I'm not going to eat of the table. First of all, let me say this, that my friend is legalism thinking that you have the right to stand in the place of God and say, well, I've decided that I myself am not worthy to partake of the table this week. Newsflash for you. None of us in ourselves is ever worthy to come to this table. There's no prioritized seating at the Lord's Supper table. We're not going to gather everyone in a great big group and go, call, start calling out people's names. You know, we're not going to be you know, standing up there and Thomas Peters, you've done best this week. You get to sit seat number one and go right down the list until we get to whatever we are in here. And we announce the worst sinner among us this week. However, let me also say this. When Paul says these words, again, he doesn't say, let a person examine himself and then not eat the bread and drink the cup. It's not what he says. Instead, it's let him examine himself and then eat and drink. 
And the point is this, is that the examination is meant to lead us to repentance and faith, to preparation of our hearts, to come to the table in the right state of mind and heart and soul. The examination is not a gate to shut us off from the Lord's table. It's a door at which we pause and examine ourselves and confess and then come to the table. We make ourselves ready. We avail ourselves of the grace of God. We avail ourselves of the blood of Christ shed to conquer your sin. Then you come to the table. And it's not in your own merit. It never is in your own merit. It's only because of the merit of Christ alone. And when we do that, the blessing that we receive is immense and it's incalculable. Our faith is deepened. Our love grows. Our dependence upon the Lord grows. We, you know, rest and we celebrate His spiritual presence that will one day be consummated face to face. And we remind ourselves that His arm is strong enough to keep me and His heart is steadfast to love me and His eyes are never, are, are ever on me and He will keep me. We take comfort in the presence of trial and hardship, in the midst of health or illness, in the midst of ease or adversity, that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And we find our spiritual resolve renewed because it's here at this table that we take a brief respite just for a moment from our calling to contend for the faith. And we savor the presence of the Lord with our brothers and sisters. And our weary souls are renewed. And thereby our resolve and our determination is fortified as we walk in this world. Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, in the early 3rd century wrote these words. He said, When Christians were to appear before cruel tyrants, they were accustomed to receive the Lord's Supper. And then they arose from the Lord's Supper as lions breathing forth the fire of heavenly courage. We come to this table and we remember Christ. Beloved, we are equipped and we are galvanized and our souls are strengthened in a way that they cannot be otherwise. As we come to this table this morning, our minds and our hearts will be actively engaged in one thing, that's remembering Christ. And so the question comes, do I really know Him personally? Not of Him, but do I really know Him? Do I know Him in a personal way, through a personal and a real faith as my Savior and as the one who bore my sins in my place? Do I know Him? Do I know Him as my Lord and as my God, as the one who commands my life? Do I know Him as my eternal hope? Do I know Him as the conqueror of sin and death, as the one who has opened heaven by His atoning death and His resurrection on my behalf and on behalf of all of His people? Because here's the thing, beloved, you cannot remember someone you do not know. But if you do know Him, Jesus says, remember me. Remember Christ as your Redeemer that's purchased you by body and blood. As Savior who's rescued you from God's wrath as, and delivered you from power of sin and of Satan. As your Lord and Master who conquers your stubborn self-will and makes you His glad servant. As your Shepherd who cares for you and who leads you and who provides for your every need. Who will not leave you nor forsake you. Who will bear you up even in the valley of the shadow of death because He's conquered death. As your high priest, who's able to save you to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for you. Remember him as your soon coming king that will give to you and to all who love his appearing the crown of 
righteousness. If you are a believer here this morning, if you're a Christian here today, if you know Christ in certainty, I want to invite you to remember the Lord Jesus. I want to invite you to remember your heart, or I mean, prepare your heart and make your soul ready to come to this table and to worship your Savior for all that He's done, to remember Him afresh and anew. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not sure you know Christ in truth, you're not sure you really have trusted Him as Savior and Lord, or you know you haven't, I'm not inviting you to this table. I'm not inviting you to this table because I do not want you to eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. Rather, I invite you to first things first. I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from your sinful and your selfish living, to turn to Him as your only Savior, to trust in His death on the cross, to pay the penalty of your sin, His body broken, His blood poured out, to taste spiritual death for you that you deserve, trust in His resurrection from the dead to prove that His death was sufficient to save you, and trust in Him alone as Lord. Surrender to Him. And it's only in that way that you can have a table, a seat at at this table of grace. So take this time. Remember Jesus. Prepare your heart. And in a moment, we'll share in the Lord's Supper together. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, our elders are going to be down here. They're going to come down right now. And they're going to sit across the front. And if you're a lady and you want to speak to a lady, Gretchen's going to be down here and you can talk to her as well. But I would invite you to take the time right now to deliberately take the time right now, if you don't know Christ, to come and speak to one of us so that you might come to faith in Him, so that you might know Him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Bow your head. Heavenly Father, I'm praying now that You would move in our midst, that, Father God, You would make us to prepare our hearts well to come to the table. And, Lord God, for those that are here that are not in Christ, Father, that they, they would indeed be broken of heart and soul and come to you, confessing their sins and crying out to you, Lord Jesus, as the only one who can deliver them. I pray you take these words and you you impress them upon our hearts. And more than that, Lord God, you cause us to respond in faith. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.